In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, greetings from University Presbyterian Church. My name is Ken Sanu. Please join me in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, send your Holy Spirit down to fill us and guide us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the beloved physician who tells about Jesus, the great physician. I love Luke's stories. He's the one that tells stories like the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, and Zacchaeus, the tax collector who climbs a tree to see Jesus. I've read Luke's gospel numerous times in my life, and in preparation for this sermon, I read through it again. And in doing so, I was struck by something I had not noticed before. I was amazed at how often the Holy Spirit keeps popping up in the first several chapters of Luke. Let me share with you just the passages when the Holy Spirit is mentioned in relation to Jesus to set the context for the reading of today's passage. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And now we can come to today's passage. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. 
He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Luke makes it clear that from the very beginning, God's Holy Spirit was preparing Jesus for ministry because he was the anointed one, the Messiah. Because Jesus is God's son, he has the authority to act just as a doctor has the authority to write a prescription that you can take to the pharmacy. This is the authority the centurion acknowledges in today's first reading when he says, Only speak the word and my servant will be healed, for I also am a man set under authority, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. However, at this early stage, The public does not yet know that Jesus is the Messiah. After Jesus was baptized, God's voice proclaims, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Immediately following this scene, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Jesus counters these temptations by refusing to be identified by anything other than the affirmation that he is God's beloved son. Jesus responds to the devil's first two temptations with the authority of scripture. It is written, one does not live by bread alone. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. When the devil tries to trick Jesus a third time by misusing scripture, Jesus makes the devil depart by holding firm to his identity as God's son. After overcoming the devil's temptations in the wilderness, Jesus is again filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and returns to his hometown of Nazareth, where on the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue and follows the tradition of male Jews participating in the service by reading scripture and then commenting on it. He's given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, And he opens to the passage that proclaims God's special concern for the poor and oppressed. He ends up creating quite a commotion with his radical comments following the reading. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Why was Jesus' reading of and commentary on this text radical enough to make his audience want to kill him? Well, Pastor George preached on one reason a couple of weeks ago, 
but there's another reason that has to do with the phrase, the year of the Lord's favor. The Old Testament defines the Sabbath as having three levels. Now, most of us are familiar with the first level, which is actually the fourth commandment. We are to rest on every seventh day, which is the Sabbath day. The other two levels are recorded for us in Leviticus 25, where God commands the Israelites to observe the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee. Every seventh year, there was to be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land when no one was allowed to sow seeds or gather the harvest. Thus, the land was given a period of rest for revitalization and renewal. The sabbatical year signified that God owned the land and gave it to the people of Israel, who were merely stewards of it. As you can imagine, this was difficult to enforce, though it was at least partially enforced in the Maccabean period. The sabbatical year is still observed in certain non-agricultural fields like academia and ministry. And then, after seven sabbatical years, that is, on the 50th year, on the Day of Atonement, a great horn was to be blown, and the Jews were to celebrate the year of Jubilee, when all debts were to be canceled, all the slaves released, all the land redistributed, and all the people returned to the land of their ancestors. Scholars in general agree that the year of the Lord's favor is a reference to the practice of the year of Jubilee authorized in Leviticus 25. It's interesting that Jubilee was to be celebrated every 50 years on the Day of Atonement, the day when the Jews would repent of their sins and ask God for forgiveness. Christians have continued this emphasis on the importance of confessing our sins. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, we need to hear the next to the last word before we hear the last word. We need to hear the bad news before we can receive the good news. We need to go through Jesus' death on Good Friday before we can hear the good news of Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday. That's why the practice of confessing our sins and hearing the assurance of pardon is such a vital part of our worship lives and our faith journeys. I love the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, all debts are canceled. Wouldn't that be good news for the poor? Wouldn't that be good news, in fact, for middle-class people today? I mean, students, think about it. You're graduating soon. You've got bills and loans from college. Good news, don't sweat it. Jubilee is coming up soon. All debts canceled. The year of Jubilee was an attempt to prevent economic exploitation and to provide social justice. Every 50 years, people would have a chance to start over without any debts. All prisoners were to be set free. You know, prisoners in those days were mainly people who were in debt. Good news for the poor indeed. Unfortunately, there is no record of the Jews or anyone else in human history ever observing the year of Jubilee. Jubilee might have been good news for the poor, 
but it was not such good news for those who had lent out their money. It was to their advantage to keep poor people powerless rather than canceling their debts. Even though the Jewish leaders were very careful to keep the first part of the Sabbath command, resting every seventh day, we find little evidence of them keeping the Sabbath year and no evidence of them keeping the Jubilee. But to be fair, would we have done any better? It's a pretty radical idea. In any event, when Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, it would have called to mind for his audience this year of Jubilee. The passage states that God's anointed one, or the Messiah, the Christ, would bring to reality the hopes of the poor, the oppressed, and the imprisoned. When the Messiah comes, one way that the people would know that he was the Messiah was that he would finally institute Jubilee. The singer Michael Card captures this theme in a song when he sings, Jubilee, Jubilee, Jesus is our Jubilee. And you'll be hearing that song uh, later on in this service. Those in the congregation listening to Jesus read that they knew their scriptures well, and they were well aware that the Messiah would be the one to proclaim Jubilee. They might well have been wondering what their hometown boy was up to in choosing this particular passage, but after Jesus finished his reading and sat down, in case anyone still had any questions, he pronounced, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, hey, I'm it. In case you didn't get it, I'm God's anointed one, and Jubilee is hereby instituted. The res response was really quite reasonable. They took him to the edge of town to throw him off a cliff. Basically, they were going to stone him, and it didn't matter what, if the stones were thrown at him or if he was thrown at the stones. They knew what to do with troublemakers. This Jesus thinks he's the Messiah, but we know his family. We knew him when he was just a little tyke playing with our kids. What makes him think he's so special? We know how to deal with blasphemers. But the interesting thing was that as they were about to throw him off the cliff, Jesus simply passed through the midst of them. It was not yet the time for him to die. Fred Craddock calls our attention to the fact that in Luke's gospel, the very first public word of Jesus as an adult, apart from reading scripture, is today. This is the beginning of Jubilee. The time of God is today. Unfortunately, the history of Christianity does not bear unbroken testimony to Jesus' announcement. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled. When we look around us, it's pretty obvious that the hungry still need food, the poor still need a decent income and a safe place to live, and that many are still sick and in prison. But Jubilee has been declared by our Lord. So today is still the time when we're to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, and freedom to the oppressed. We are to work for economic equity and justice for all. Today is still the day for Jubilee, a time to give those who have no hope a reason to celebrate. And that's really what the kingdom of God is all about. 
We are indeed to work for peace and justice, but we're to do so with a cheerful and joyful attitude, not grudgingly. The kingdom of God is about bringing joy and celebration into the world. You can even call the kingdom of God a party. Jubilee comes from the same root word as the word jubilation, joyful celebration of God's good news. And that's really what the church is all about. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that the Christian life is always about parties and rejoicing and celebrating, ignoring life's hardships. That would be what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. The Christian life covers the whole gamut of human experience, including lament, sacrifice, and growth. How crass it would be after the tumultuous year that we've had, that we've been through, to pretend that all is right with the world and all we have to do is just sing kumbaya all the time. The point is that this is the time to, to give those who have no hope a reason to hope. Rich Velotis writes, in the season of Lent, the church emphasizes ascetic practices such as fasting to ground us in the notion that we are not to be exclusively governed by our appetites, but by God's way and will. So for a season, we'll go without some of the things that bring us delight. And in so doing, we live from a different center. The problem we fall into with this diet, however, is that it was never meant to be the only mode of faith and practice. For far too many Christians have lived as if Lent were a year-round season of the church, but it's not. In fact, to fast when God calls us to feast is a violation of the highest order. Repeatedly, Jesus told his disciples to enjoy the feast that was before them, knowing that there would come a time when fasting would be the appropriate response to life. In the Gospel of Matthew, while speaking of his presence among his followers, Jesus said, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. In other words, don't subject yourself to something Jesus didn't command. What God did command is for us to celebrate Jubilee and to share the exciting and joyful news of Jubilee with other people. Today, the kingdom of God is at hand, and Jubilee has been instituted. The time is now for justice for the poor and oppressed. But if this is true, then why do we still see so much poverty and oppression in the world? William Mullamon says, the Christian life is a life lived between D-Day and V-E-Day. That is between the landing at Normandy and the final victory in Europe. The decisive battle has been won. The battles we face today are part of the mopping up operation to implement that victory. In other words, evil can still cause great harm but not ultimate harm anymore. In the meantime, we are to live as those who know that the decisive battle has been fought 
The war has been won and we have been liberated to live as those who know for sure who sits on the throne. There is now only one power we are to obey in life and death, in life beyond death. That power has a human face, a face once crowned with thorns. That's why we should be jubilant in our faith because the gospel is indeed a cause for celebration. Isaiah 61 states that when the Messiah comes, you'll know he's the Messiah because he will finally institute the year of the Lord's favor. The Messiah will institute jubilee. The kingdom of God that Jesus constantly talks about is jubilee come to life. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying that God would help us to be jubilee Christians, that God would help us to do our part to institute his jubilee here on earth. We, as the body of Christ, are to help bring good news to the poor, deliverance to the captives, and healing to the sick, all in a spirit of jubilation and joy. And when we do this, we give hope to those who have no hope, giving even those going through difficulties a reason to celebrate. Not even death can quench this hope. This point is illustrated in one of my favorite stories told by Tony Campolo about the first time he went to a funeral in his church, which happens to be a large African-American congregation in West Philadelphia. He was 17 years old, and his good friend Clarence had gotten killed in an accident. Campolo is Italian-American, and he'd never been to a black funeral before. The pastor got up, and for the first 15 minutes of the service, he spoke with great eloquence on what the Bible says about the promise of the resurrection and the joys of being with Christ. The pastor then came down off the platform and went over to the family of Clarence. And he said to the rest of the congregation, you can listen in if you want. To the family, he spoke words of comfort and words of peace and words of joy. The last thing he did was he came over to the open casket and he said, Clarence, Clarence. Campolo remarked that when his pastor speaks, he speaks with such authority that no one would have been surprised had there been an answer. He said, Clarence, you die too fast. There were a lot of things we should have said to you when you were alive and that we didn't, and that was our mistake. But Clarence, we're going to say them now. He started to go down a litany of beautiful, wonderful things Clarence had done, how Clarence had helped this elderly gentleman and, and that elderly lady, uh, shoveled snow for that shut-in, babysat those kids, done this thing and that thing. He went down this list of beautiful deeds that Clarence had done, of how he had served others without thought of reward. When he finished, he said, 
That's it, Clarence. That's it. There's nothing else to say. And when there's nothing else to say, there's only one thing to say. Good night. He grabbed the lid of the casket and said, Good night, Clarence. And he slammed it shut. You want drama? Try that. Good night, Clarence. Bam. Slowly, he lifted up his eyes as a smile lit up his face. And he said, good night, Clarence. Good night. Because I know that God is going to give you a good morning. And with that, the choir rose to its feet and started singing, on that great getting up morning, we shall rise, we shall rise. And all the people in the congregation were up in the aisles and jumping and cheering and clapping. And Campolo was up and he was cheering and he was dancing. And he wanted to join that church. He wanted to join a church that knew how to take a funeral and turn it into a party, into a time of jubilation. If you haven't yet joined this party, and if you're looking for a genuine jubilee reason to hope, even in this challenging time, I invite you to do so today. There's plenty of room for you, and we'd love to have you. Just go to upc.org Jesus, and a spiritual advisor can help you get started. We saw that Luke begins his gospel by showing us how the Holy Spirit is with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry and prepares him for ministry. Luke also begins his second book, the book of Acts, by mentioning the Holy Spirit. Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus was God's gift of grace and salvation to the world. As our Advent devotional reminded us, with this gift comes a promise and an invitation. We are promised the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are invited to join Jesus in his mission of salvation. You are invited to come and join Jesus in his mission of salvation. For today, this scripture has been fulfilled in our hearing, and jubilee has been proclaimed. Now, we're still living in the now and the not yet, but we know the end of the story. So come join the adventure of a radical commitment to Jesus that is also filled with joy and jubilation. Come join other Jubilee Christians and become a Jubilee Christian yourself. It's a life that announces good news to the poor and oppressed, that brings life from death, and that can even turn a funeral into a party. Amen. Please pray with me. God, thank you for the good news of Jubilee. Help us to be Jubilee Christians, to go out into the world and share the good news of your gospel with our neighbors. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.